0: Welcome to the Mountain Brook Baptist Church podcast. We pray that this message will help you in your walk with Christ. The title of Dr. Swan's sermon today is a radical reappraisal. The big idea is that Paul was incredibly successful in the eyes of the world before he met Jesus. But once he met Jesus, he reappraised the value of everything so that all things became rubbish compared to the value of knowing Jesus. I want to mention something in the sermon about my experience growing up. And one of the things about growing up that I remember is I grew up in a church where people, usually most Sundays, usually the same guy would figure out some way to say amen at some point during the Sunday morning worship service. And um, if he were here, he would have said amen when you finished. Um, That is just a beautiful song that you sang that really does capture the essence of the passage that we're looking at today. So thank you, um, choir, for doing that. We're in Philippians chapter 3 um, this morning. If, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read. If you didn't bring a Bible, um, grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 831, Philippians chapter 3. One more thing I wanted to acknowledge, um, Mitchell and Caitlin are in part of a young married Sunday school class, and a new class that's recently been launched, and um, so many of them were here. Hope you saw that, Mitchell. Um, as a sign of their support and love for you. And that's, that's good to see um, in our church. So glad you're here. Working through the book of Philippians, we started the first week um, looking at Paul's prayer for the Philippians and acknowledging our dependence upon God to be at work among us, to accomplish his purposes and his plans in and through us. Last week we looked at Christ's humility And thought about what it might look like for us to look out not just for our own interests, but also for the interests of others here in our community of faith and in the world. And today we're going to look at what it looks like for us perhaps to embrace and understand the true value of what God has done for us in Jesus so that we see everything else in an appropriate value in comparison to what he's done for us in Jesus. With so that in mind, I invite you to listen to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things I like to do a lot growing up, I like to collect baseball cards. And I think I got this love, or I started this love, by watching my brother-in-law, Jonas, who I wouldn't have told him at the time, but I wanted to be like him in a lot of respects. And so he was a baseball card collector, and so I thought I would be as well. And so one of the things that we would do on a fairly regular basis is that we would go to a place called Trade Day. Now, you might be able to picture what trade day looks like in your mind. It's a kind of a flea market type thing that happens. Probably the official name is Burr's Trading Post. Don't Google it. You won't find it. You can't order anything and have it delivered to your house for sure. But on Mondays and Thursdays, you could show up at trade day, and there was a collection of stuff that would make itself make its way to trade day. And I would walk through the aisles, and I'd walk past the... The chickens, I couldn't really figure out what I would do with a chicken or a goat. Walk past the used toys or the tools or the old chainsaws that people were trying to sell. And the thing that I was looking for was one or two, sometimes there were two, guys there that were selling baseball cards. And I would look through, There's if you haven't bought baseball cards in a while, let me give you a reminder of how it works or a window into this. You can buy the ones that are already open. You can go and flip through and look for your favorite player and see how much money you have and what you think you could take home. I would do that sometimes. Sometimes you could buy a pack that was just a random collection and kind of take a chance, right? But the thing that I liked the most was to buy a pack that was sealed in hopes that I would find some card of great value, you probably guessed that I didn't do that very often. I didn't find very many of great value. But in the ride home, I would look through and see what I got. And back in the day before the Internet, those of you who are, who are too young, there was a world before the Internet. In that day before the Internet, I would go and I would get Beckett was the company that you, they made the book. I guess they were the authority on how much baseball cards were worth. And I would flip through, and I'd find the year, and I'd go down, and I'd find the player. Of course, it was in mint condition. You know, I'd run my finger across, and usually it was, what, 50 cents? Maybe I'd have a big one, $7.50. But I never stopped. I, I always loved going and thinking that I was going to find that really, really valuable card, perhaps. And what makes cards valuable? Well, on the back side of every baseball card, what do you find? Stats. You find the lifetime stats. And baseball is a game that is obsessed with stats. It wasn't as quite obsessed back then as it is now with stats. But, but you walk down the, the card and you could find batting average, stolen bases. There was a, a category on the end, errors. And the more that the player was able to perform at the highest standard for the more years, usually that person's card was worth more. For example, if you had a Willie Mays card, it's probably worth a little bit more, no offense, than Bobby Bonilla. Why? Because he had made so much more contributions to the game. He just did it at a higher level for so long and was so important that his card was then worth a lot of money. Now, most of us in this room have never had a baseball card with our face on the front. But if we're not careful, we think about our lives in similar ways. That our picture's on the front, and we turn it around and we flip to the back, and there's the stats of all the things that we've done in life. And we sometimes think that if I can do it well enough and at a high enough level for long enough, If I can cut down on the errors, then then my card or my life, so to speak, is more valuable. And we can do that when it comes to our relationship with God. We can start to think that if I operate at a high enough level for long enough, then surely I'm more valuable to God. If I can avoid the big errors, then surely I'm more valuable to God. And rather than putting our confidence fully in what God has done for us in Jesus, we are tempted to put our confidence in our own flesh and our own ability to measure up well enough to the standards that God has put there for us. The Apostle Paul once approached life and his relationship with God in that way. And if there were to have been um, trading cards for which Paul was a uh, category, and you got the Apostle Paul, you would have been really, really happy that day at trade day. And when you got home and you looked down the, the Beckett list, it would have been worth a lot of money because Paul did it at a high level for a long time. And he lays out his resume, so to speak, here in Philippians chapter 3. And He says, to his opponents who were trying to preach a different gospel or add to the gospel in Philippi, that if righteousness before God is a matter of the things that we can do in our own power, then I want you to know that I am at the top of the list. Listen to what he says there in verse 5. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day just means that he was circumcised in keeping with Old Testament law. So from the very early ages, his parents did the right thing. Check. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul's just saying, if you look back at my genealogy, I belong to the right people. And I can even tell you what tribe I was in. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Everything in my life was perfect. Everything that I inherited at birth, things that were done for me before I could even do them myself, everything checked out. And then Paul's going to say in the next verse that that he took every opportunity to make advantage of the blessings that he had received. In regard to the law of Pharisee, that that just means for us that, that Paul knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. If there was Bible drill in Paul's day, he had all the ribbons. You didn't want to ask him a question about anything Old Testament, he had it locked down. He knew it forwards and backwards. As for zeal persecuting the church, so when Paul started to understand that there were people claiming that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that these Gentiles could come in and be part of God's people in full standing. Paul persecuted the church, thought that their teachings were blasphemous. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Other translations say blameless. And Paul goes into detail about his life and about how perfect he was if we were judging him by the flesh. Because that was what his opponents were trying to inject in Philippi. They were trying to get Gentile believers to accept the Old Testament expectation of circumcision. Kids, when you get home today, ask your parents what that means. But when you go to the Old Testament, there was this expectation in Genesis 17 that if you were a part of God's covenant people, then you took on circumcision as a sign of belonging to God's people. And in the first century, when the gospel began to explode and take root among Gentiles, there was a real problem to understand how do we bring them into God's people. And if you read through the book of Acts, you you get this. I mean, things that would make us nervous in in our kind of politically correct culture, when you read through and Paul goes and he visits these Gentiles, he says things that you and I would be like, you can't say that, Paul. But Paul's like, you know I'm not supposed to be here. Like, Why have you called me here? I can't come in and be with you. And ultimately, Paul would come to see that the transformation that God had done through faith in Christ so transformed their identity that that nothing in the flesh or secondary apart from being in Christ mattered anymore. And so he goes on the offensive in Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Dogs are just unclean animals. And perhaps Paul's doing something here where he's saying, you're trying to help Gentiles understand how they can be fully clean or a part of God's people, but actually what you're doing is opposing God's purposes. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So what Paul says is that now, on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus alone has fully met the demands of the law on our behalf so that we no longer strive to do it well enough, long enough, in order to earn God's favor. Instead, we receive a righteousness that is not ours through faith in Jesus Christ, and we're fully reconciled to God and become members full standing in God's people because of what God has done for us in Jesus, full stop. I'm concerned, because I know my own heart, that those of us who have been in church for a really long time sometimes can't hear the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus as clearly as the Lord would have us hear it. And we start to creep back into legalism and doing it well enough for long enough to earn God's favor. We start to think, if I can just maybe read my Bible well enough, if I can just go to church enough, if I can stay awake during the sermon long enough, right? If I can do all these things, if I can give enough money, if I can, and it becomes this pursuit to do everything that you can in your effort to meet God's righteous demands. And if the good news as you understand it is, here's the good news. Jesus died for you, so you have an opportunity now to justify yourself by a life of good works and striving. That is not good news, if you're anything like me. Imagine going to your office tomorrow or in the neighborhood and you said, hey, I've got great news for you. And somebody said, sure, tell me more about the good news. Um, Jesus died on the cross, and here's the invitation. You can accept that salvation and then live with a low-level sense of guilt the rest of your life that you're not measuring up. Does that sound like good news to you? Likely the person would say, no thanks, I have enough low-level guilt. I can remember seeing David down front. Reminds me of a time when I was at Shades Crest in seminary. I waited tables at Brio. Some of you were sad to see Brio go. I always drove by Brio and just kind of had PTSD a little bit. <clears throat> I, I'm not particularly sad to see it out of business. We, we, we moved here, and we had no jobs, no no friends, no anything. And in God's providence, the manager at the time was a graduate of the University of South Carolina. I'd never waited tables in my life. He said, sure, we'll hire you. Must have been desperate. And one weekend, Mary went home to South Carolina, and I worked a double shift it was Saturday night. The only reason, for some reason, they gave me Saturday lunch in the fall Like How much money do you think I made waiting tables at Brio going up against Auburn and Alabama? Not much. Poor guys who did come in there, I, I kid you not, one guy came in. He had his radio in his ear eating dinner with his wife. Totally not interested. But I worked a double this day. I worked lunch and I worked evening. And I was exhausted. I went home to our little apartment over in Hoover. It's a whole story in and of itself. And I woke up the next morning. It's Sunday. And what do seminary students do on Sunday? We go to church. And I got up and the whole thing, shower, getting dressed, getting ready to go out the door. And I look up and church is over. I had slept through church. So I still had to eat Mary was not there, so I made my way down to Jim and Nick's not far from our apartment. I'm sitting there, it sounds like a bad country song. I'm sitting there eating by myself, drowning my sorrows. And guess what happens? Church people walk in who obviously had been to church. And in that moment, I felt so much conviction that I wasn't, measuring up that day to what God would expect from me. And the truth of the gospel, you all, is that on my best days, if I'd gotten out of the bed that morning and I had gone to the Walmart parking lot and witnessed to 12 people and led a mini revival and then went to church and then taught Sunday school and then preached the sermon and then left and changed somebody's tire on the side of the road, and then bought lunch for everybody who couldn't pay for it. The good news is that each of those days, God's love for me in Jesus is constant. And Paul says, I don't brag in myself. That word glory, you can translate it brag. I no longer hold up my trophy and say, look at what I've done. I've been holy enough for long enough. I've memorized the Bible enough. I've given enough. I'm, I'm glorying in who I am and what I've done. I'm bragging. Paul says, now I put no confidence in the flesh and in what I can do, but instead I brag on Jesus and what he has done. I brag and I glory in what Jesus has done for me. And in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. If you had your card, if you did have a baseball card, if you do, please show me at some point. I would love to see it. But you flip over on the back. And this is what the good news is, that no matter how great you've been or how impressive you've been or if you've always been from the right family or the right group and you've achieved high enough and well enough, that all of that stuff is wiped off and the only thing that's there is the record of what Jesus has done for you. Or if you're like some people and you're obsessed with the E, like you're obsessed with the errors that you've committed, and you think there's no way, like there's no way that God could be fully pleased with me because I'm going to give you all the errors that I've committed. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that's gone. And the only thing on the back of that card is the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is now yours through faith and not in what you have done. It's so important that you and I, as followers of Christ, value the correct things. And it's not that how we live doesn't matter. It's not that how we respond we do. Like the choir song said, our greatest joy is now to know this Savior who's revealed himself to us in these miraculous and gracious ways. But we don't wear ourselves out trying to be something that we never could be. That's not good news. And if the gospel takes root more fully in our church, more fully in each of us in our hearts and our lives. The impulse that Paul gives us there in Philippians 3.1 to rejoice in the good news of what God has done for us in Christ will grow. And we will stop maybe judging each other based on how well we've got it together or how much of a mess that we are or how righteous we think we can be, and ultimately our only hope and our only glory, our only boast, our only brag, will be in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for the good news for all that you have done for us in Jesus. And Lord, we confess our tendency to judge ourselves and to judge others and the value of our lives and their lives based on how well we can do it in our own power. We pray that you would make us a group of people who more fully understand and believe the good news of all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. That we would find rest in him. And that our goal and our hope would be to respond in gratitude with the power of the spirit at work in our hearts to know Jesus and live for him more and more. If it exists, we pray you would rid us of any sense of superiority. Any sense of pride in who we are and what we've done. If it exists in us that we think we can never measure up or that you would not want relationship with us, pray that you would take that thought from our hearts and our minds and replace it with the good news of the gospel. We might be a more faithful congregation in this place. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that today's message brought you hope as we continue to love God and live with grace and generosity. Be sure to check back here for more podcasts. And as always, go out and do the Lord's good work.